0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is Brian Lair's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Wednesday, October 5th. And to all our Jewish listeners, we hope you have an easy fast and a meaningful Yom Kippur. The U.S. Supreme Court kicked off another term with the nine justices returning to the bench this week. This comes, of course, after a tumultuous summer where the court issued a series of high-profile decisions where conservatives dominated, expanding gun rights and upending abortion access. In fact, data compiled by professors from Washington University in St. Louis and the University of Michigan found the last time the court produced as many conservative decisions was in 1931. In this last term, conservatives prevailed in 62% of the decisions. This new term is poised to be dramatic in its own right, starting with one of the first cases justices heard oral arguments in yesterday. The case, Merrill v. Milligan, looks at a new congressional map for the state of Alabama, which were drawn to allow only one district likely to elect a black representative, despite black residents making up 27 percent of the population. The decision will have major and lasting voting rights implications. Joining me now to talk more about this case is Nation Nation Justice Correspondent Ellie Mistal, author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Ellie, welcome back to WNYC.
0: Hi, Bridget, how are you doing? And as you said earlier, um, we wish everybody a, a, an easy fast uh, today.
1: So, Ellie, let's get into it. Merrill V. Mulligan deals with maps drawn for this year's congressional races in Alabama. Those maps were found to be racially gerrymandered by a panel of Trump-majority federal judges, They were ordered to be redrawn, and yet this U.S. Supreme Court ordered them to be used. Did I get that right? And can you add a little bit more by way of background?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, Alabama did its redistricting based on the 2020 census. Alabama has seven congressional seats. They drew only one majority-minority district. Well, as you pointed out, Alabama is actually 27% black So therefore, it makes sense for them to have two majority (laughs) minority districts. Two of seven is twenty eight percent for those of you who haven't seen a TI 87 in a while. Right. (laughs) So that's what they should have done. They didn't do that for kind of obvious reasons. Um, A three judge panel of the 11th Circuit said that, yeah, this is an easy violation. Of the voting rights act specifically section two of the voting rights act which makes it illegal to discriminate voting on the basis of race or dilute voting on the basis of race so that was a kind of point and click violation of the the voting rights act um but the supreme court back in february ordered alabama to use the racist maps in a close decision um with uh, probably brett kavanaugh being the swing vote Brett Kavanaugh said that we were too close to the midterms back in February to Mm. stop the racist maps. So there you go. Um, And then yesterday they actually had the argument, the oral argument on the merits of the case, whether or not the maps actually violated uh, the Voting Rights Act and the conservative justices, uh, the six of them, in different ways. Um, seemed skeptical that the Voting Rights Act or, or racial discrimination is even a thing that we can argue anymore uh, 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 when confronted with maps as racist as Alabama's.
1: Hmm. So, uh, Ellie, I have a confession. Um, I have an alert on your tweets so I can follow the news out of the court. It's a (laughs) silent alert, fortunately, but I got a lot of them yesterday because you were live tweeting those oral arguments. And I want to unpack some of the lines of questioning, starting with some of the more liberal justices. Justice Elena Kagan said that under precedent, this case would be, quote, a slam dunk. What did she mean by that?
0: Yeah. So again, the Voting Rights Act section two makes it fairly clear what you can and cannot do with in voting. There is a Supreme Court precedent case um, called Thornburg versus um, uh, Gingles. uh, Sorry, Jingles. (laughs) I'm saying it (laughs) the Samolito way Um, versus Jingles, um, which kind of lays out a fairly complicated and fact intensive uh, test to see if a district or if a a redistricting map is uh, racially biased. This uh, Alabama map kind of meets all of those criteria uh, quite easily. The, the the key issue here is that the the second black district in Alabama should have been along what's colloquially known as the black belt. People who are kind of familiar with southern racist geography and where black people were allowed to live at various times in history know that there's kind of a cluster of black towns and black majority, um, cities that kind of goes from East Texas, kind of sweeps through the old South and, 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 and kind of terminates on, on the, Uh, Eastern Coast of Virginia, the Mm -hmm. part of the black belt that sweeps through Alabama um, uh, west to east um, is where the second black district um, should have been. But instead of making that section, uh, that that district a a cohesive black district, they split it up into like four or five districts in the gerrymandering parlance. This is called cracking. It's called, Mm -hmm. you know, taking a a kind of critical mass of non-white voters and cracking them, splitting them up. And so they are subsumed in larger masses of white voters. Notably, they didn't crack. Um, a district they made kind of over the span of the Gulf Coast a very white area of Alabama right on the the coast of the Gulf of Mexico there um, they didn't crack that district they they kept all the white voters together um, on the Gulf coast of Alabama but they cracked the, the the black belt district so Elena Kagan was saying kind of very obviously um, that this is a point-and-click violation of, of section two of the Voting Rights Act and again as you mentioned Bridget, There was a three judge panel of the 11th Circuit. Two of those judges were Trump judges. Mm -hmm. They said it was a slam dunk, easy point and click violation of the Voting Rights Act. So this is the idea that this is okay is the the fact that the Supreme Court is hearing this uh, case at all is one of the signs that we are dealing with an extremist conservative court, an extremist Republican court who sees itself not as the enforcer of basic longstanding Supreme Court doctrine, but simply the enforcement arm of whatever the Republican Party feels like it wants today.
1: And I want to pick pick up on this idea of some of what Justice Kagan was saying in terms of Not just what this case could mean for Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, but how this is coming on top of a series of decisions over the past few years that have been chipping away at the power of the Voting Rights Act. Um, yeah, Bridget, play-
0: let, let me do this way. To, to really explain this, I got to go back a bit, right? We go <laughs> Well, back. well
1: let me, before you go back, What's let it? me play a little piece of what Justice Kagan said oh, yesterday. Sure. And I just want to tell our listeners, this is about a minute and a half of Justice Kagan. And then, uh, Ellie, I'm going to ask you to unpack a lot. She said a lot in this minute and a half. So let's go sure. ahead and play this clip.
2: This is an important statute. It's one of the great achievements of American democracy to achieve equal political opportunities regardless of race, to ensure that African-Americans could have as much political power as 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 white Americans could. That's a pretty big deal. And it was strengthened, this statute in 1982, when this court interpreted it too narrowly for Congress's taste. And Congress said, no, we didn't mean that at all and made this into a results test. Now, in recent years, the statute has fared not well in this court. Shelby County looks at Section 5 and it says, no, nope, Section 5, we don't need that anymore. And one of the things it says is we have Section 2. And then Brnovich comes along and that's a Section 2 case. And the court says, you know what, um, Section 2, they're really dilution claims. Um, you know, this is a denial claim. And, and uh, so we can construe that very narrowly. But of course, there's just all these cases that are dilution claims. That's really what section two is about. And now here we are, section two is a dilution claim. This, you know, the classic section two dilution claim. And you're asking us essentially to cut back substantially on our 40 years of precedent and to make this too extremely difficult to prevail on. So what's left?
1: Ooh, she, like I said, she she does a lot in that minute and a half, Ellie. But I think the the quote that stood out for me was she said, "The statute has not faced well in this court." Um, can you help us unpack some of what she's saying there?
0: Sure. So my pick for the most important piece of legislation in American history is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I don't. We are an apartheid nation before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Voting Rights Act is the thing that made the 15th Amendment real, that made the 19th Amendment real for women of color, It is the thing that allowed for equal suffrage in a democracy. It's the most important piece of legislation. Now, you heard Kagan say that that legislation was buttressed in 1982. Um, there, was an, a, there was a congressional amendment to the Voting Rights Act, which that which changed it because before 1982, um, to prove a violation of the Voting Rights Act, basically the Republican legislature or the conservative legislature would have to say, "I hate black people," so I'm making this law. Like that, it had to be that explicit. In 1982, we changed the law so that if the result was racial discrimination, that was enough to be a violation. You didn't have to prove that they intended um, uh, to to be discriminatory, right? In 1982, the Reagan White House under then Attorney General William French brought in a lawyer specifically to construct legal arguments against that 1982 expansion of the Voting Rights Act. That lawyer was John Roberts. Chief (laughs) Justice John Roberts was against the 1982 expansion of the Voting Rights Act. He has been an enemy of voting rights specifically black people voting rights, he has been an enemy of those rights for his entire career. And so, what Kagan is doing by referencing 90, 1982, she's going right into Roberts's history before she even gets to the Supreme Court. And what she's talking about when she says that, uh, when she mentions the cases that have come up for the Supreme Court, she's talking about the various ways that John Roberts and his conservative cronies have weakened, have systemically weakened the Voting Rights Act at every opportunity they've had. In t- t- 2013, Shelby County v. Holder, what that did was uh, end pre-clearance. Basically, right. former Confederate states had to ask permission before changing their voting rights laws. John Roberts got rid of that, declaring racism functionally over in the South, by the way, as he was doing that. Well, um, the and- case. And- Huh? And
1: New York City. New York City was covered by that as well. Yes, there were parts of
0: New York City that were also covered by that. All places that have been had a historical kind of uh, racial discriminatory um, voting laws were covered by the Section 5, of the Voting Rights Act. Roberts got rid of all of that in 2013. Um, it's the hidden reason Trump won in 2016. It wasn't just diners in Ohio really like the mag. It was also there was it was the first, 2016 was our first election without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. And you saw what happened. In Mm -hmm. 2021, Bernovich v. Arizona, they weakened section two. Section two is the section that says directly, you can't discriminate uh, on the basis of race. And if you do, that is illegal. So they weakened that in 2021. And now with this case, um merrill v milligan um that they heard yesterday what they're fundamentally trying to do is to make it so that it's almost impossible to prove that racial discrimination happened at all
1: so it's, it's bad yeah there's there but let's go back to some of the other questions from you know one of our newest our our newest justice Um, This is the first term for our news justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and she asked some very pointed questions about the 14th Amendment, a Reconstruction Era amendment intended to provide equal protection under the law. I want to play a little bit of what she said leading up to one of those questions. Here's Justice Brown-Jackson.
2: I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account that that necessarily creates an equal protection problem because I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution at what the framers and the founders thought about and when I drilled down to that level of analysis it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the Fourteenth Amendment, the Fifteenth Amendment, in a race-conscious
1: way, and of course that is just about thirty seconds of what was, you know, described by many is is a real history lesson from uh, Justice Jackson about the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, uh, Ellie, what are the lawyers from Alabama arguing, and and what can you tell us about how she used her line of questioning?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that's happened with the modern conservative movement is that they've tried to co op the 14th Amendment and misread it into this amendment that demands color blindness that they've reinterpreted the Equal Protection Clause to be like, oh, we can't look at race at all in any situation. That would be bad. That's the argument that they're making. That's one of the arguments that Alabama is making in this case is that to make a second majority-minority district, they would have to look at race. They would have to look at where different people, people from different races actually live. And they're arguing that would be bad. That would be a violation of equal protection. They're essentially saying that creating a second majority minority district that would keep Alabama in demographic um, um, alacrity with its with its population numbers would actually be racist to white folks. Now, that argument has been made by white conservatives at the Supreme Court for many years now. But here comes Ketanji Brown Jackson, first black woman justice, and she was not having any of it. And she <laughs> what she did in those three sections was the beginning of her schooling these Alabama lawyers on the true history of the 14th Amendment. And as she said, I also say this in my book, allow me to retort a black eye has got it to the Constitution, just fly <laughs> good, on. It's good <laughs> just a little plug. But she 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 talks about how the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was passed contingent upon the ratification of the 14th Amendment, and that was a very uh, race-conscious civil rights act, specifically trying to bring black citizens up to the level of equality enjoyed by white men since 1787. So the idea that the 14th Amendment was always meant to be colorblind or race-neutral fails its first contact with reality if you listen to the people who wrote the 14th Amendment, which, and here's the coup de grace, if you consider the original intentions Mm. of the people who wrote these laws as important. So Kataji Brown Jackson is actually also flipping the originalist argument and saying like, oh, we're gonna be originalist now. We're gonna go to original intent. Let's look at the original intent of the people who wrote the 14th Amendment to understand the race positive way they were thinking of their laws. It was a brilliant Mm. kind of, um, turn and something that I that, that has been lacking, um, I think, at oral argument for for at least my lifetime. Um, and so so it was, it was a really great great bit. Unfortunately, you know, and this is I think true of our society in general. I think when you see you know various uh, GOP candidates running for Senate for Senate and things like that, uh, Republicans don't care about their own hypocrisy. Like even when you catch them in their own hypocrisy even when you play and win the argument on their terms if you don't come to the outcome that they want they do not care they are not bound by logic they are not bound by their own uh stated goals so even though kataji brown jackson kind of beat them at their own game That won't affect the outcome of this case.
1: I want to take a moment on the questioning from Justice Sotomayor, uh, who you wrote a really sweeping profile of this summer for the nation. She pointedly asked why Alabama did not split up any majority white districts. And their response to that
0: was Um, their response to that was uh, because we didn't want to. I mean, it was as simple as that the they, they, they talked about their traditional um, um, patterns of districting um, when they say traditional, that means that they traditionally didn't break up white towns. Um, when it came to their maps, and so they didn't want to this time, the whole argument and here's here's where you really need where, here's where we i'm going to try to stay above the legal weeds, but the, the nuance is important, there are six conservatives and they don't always agree and so really. What, what we're looking at here in terms of their arguments is a three-three split, and we don't know which side is going to win yet, right? <laughs> um, the, the more extreme side, the, the Sam Alito side, if we, shall we say, they're the ones that are arguing that you cannot prove that the districting map was racist unless you can point to a race-neutral map made up by an expert or most likely an expert using a computer that would independently pop out a second uh, black district without taking any racial factors into account. Now, that might sound simple, but it's actually extremely complicated, because if you can't tell the computer where black people live, if you can't tell the computer other indices that might indicate where black people live, like because so many um, factors are, in fact, tied to race. So if you can't tell the computer what housing prices are, what mortgage prices are, what average salary is, if you can't tell the computer anything of that, then uh, mm-hmm. anything like that, then it is unlikely that the computer will 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 pop out randomly um, a, a east west black district across. Alabama. One uh, key factor here, and they bring this up in their oral arguments, um, when, when you heard the Alabama lawyer talking about geography, he was talking about uh, the districts should comport to the extent possible to the rivers in Alabama. Why we care about rivers in 2022, <laughs> somebody will have to explain to me, but that it should comport to the rivers. Well, the rivers in Alabama, t- the ones he's talking about, run north to south. So if you are going to respect districts that are within uh, that are within north south boundaries by rivers, you are going to necessarily break up black people who are oriented on an east west axis. So you can see how even something that sounds like a race neutral factor, just look at the rivers, actually directly impacts bl- the the power of the black vote in a state like Alabama. So that was their kind of Sam Alito uh, approved key argument. Um, that you you have to basically make the computer dumb enough that it can't know where black people live. And if you, and if that dumb computer doesn't randomly pop out um, a district with a, a map with another black district, well, then you can't prove that what Alabama did um, was a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act.
1: I, I think what you are did in that explanation sort of defines what we heard Alito describe as, quote, reasonably configured. That would be, you know, the computer spitting out this, you know, (laughs) riverbound district uh, that, that like uh, passes this geographic test for compactness and all those other, those elements. Um, It sounded like he was also making another argument, which was that, um, that the racially polarized voting in Alabama may just come down to different political ideologies. And here is a little clip we're going to play of of Justice Alito yesterday.
0: They're not going to win on whether the majority votes as a block, which may be due to ideology and not have anything to do with race. It may be that black voters and white voters prefer different candidates now because they have different ideas about what uh, the government should do.
1: So maybe it's just an ideological difference. Is is that the thrust, the will of the people argument?
0: Yeah, man, I don't know what racism Alito was driving at there. I mean, he is he is a weird dude with, you know, he, he he's he's the justice that's most likely watching Fox News every day. Right. So I don't know because I'm not up on, on what they're saying on that channel. I don't know what what racial theory that he is he is driving at there. What I do know is that, again, I said earlier, the test to see whether or not you've violated Section Two of the Voting Rights Act um, um, in Jingles is actually like super deep and super complicated and super fact intensive, right? So I think what he's trying to do is to poke holes at other factors in the jingles test. Maybe they're not. One of the things is that they have to be a cohesive, one of the factors in that test is that they have to be a cohesive block of voters that you are discriminating against. So he's, I think, trying to, to cast a Spurgeons on the idea that black people in Alabama are a single block of voters uh, just without getting, Let's not lose the the, the forest for the trees. Mm. In 2020, 77% of white voters in Alabama voted for Donald Trump. 89% of black voters in Alabama voted for Joe Biden. Why ever? We are in this uh, a state of racial uh, 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 disparity when it comes to our voting. Um, I don't have to make a call on that. I can just acknowledge that it is so. And right. that would be enough to, to satisfy another jingles factor. But I mentioned, Bridget, that there are two kind of conservative arguments. Uh, camps right now at the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. The more narrow one is the one that was kind of surfaced maybe by Roberts, a little bit uh, by Kavanaugh, um, perhaps by Barron, I'm trying to be hopeful here. Um, and that was simply saying that the the Alabama uh, second black district um, just didn't pass the Jingles test because it was not, quote, and you used the word already, Bridget, compact. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about an east-west district that kind of spans the state um, there is an argument that conservatives are making um, that that is simply not legally compact enough to be a reasonable district um, in 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 Alabama. I think that's a bad argument, but that is a much narrower, narrower argument than what Alito is trying to sell
1: so we got a tweet from a listener, and this kind of gets to what one of my you know final questions on this case was the, the list, our listener tweeted this is from Hollis Bronstein. Is there anything we can do when or if SCOTUS makes, quote, the wrong decision allowing for further discrimination in this country, which is also, I think, another way of asking, like, what are the best and worst case scenarios from your perspective in this case?
0: Again, the the worst case scenario is that Alito wins and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is is functionally dead letter. It's a a law that exists, but it's not a law that one can successfully uh, prove. Um, now the response to kind of all of the Supreme Court's uh, um, attacks on the Voting Rights Act because again this is as Elena Kagan said this isn't the first they've been they've been doing this for a decade now. Hmm. the response to all of those attacks on the Voting Rights Act is to, reauthorize and strengthen the Voting Rights Act, right? So we have the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which specifically would restore section five of the Voting Rights Act. Um, we've had other bills talking about strengthening and, and sharpening the Voting Rights Act so that can actually protect uh, the, the minority votes and stop voter suppression. We, we We can't get those bills passed through Congress, through the Senate specifically, because there are some senators who, also don't like it when black people vote i mean i don't know what else to tell you so like w- as long as we are going to have you know 50 plus 1 senators who are opposed to the idea of equal voting rights we're not going to have equal voting rights and i'll mm-hmm. just say that you know people are like well how can we live this way remember this, I, as i said this country lived perfectly fine according to white folks as an apartheid nation for for almost for 150 years so the the idea that this country cannot sustain simply ignoring or suppressing the black vote is unfortunately not true it's as american as apple pie to 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 take away equal protection rights and equal voting rights from non-white citizens in this country if we want them to not do that we have to fight doggedly for it and not just fight Um, The white supremacists who want to take those rights away, but also fight the so-called good white people who just don't think that that's really important right now and that they're actually bigger issues like gas prices Um, uh, when it comes to whether or not people have an equal and fair access to the ballot. We are going to have
1: to leave it there for today with Nation Justice correspondent Ellie Mistal, author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Bridget.
2: Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. See you tomorrow.